Craft Spirit pioneer Roger Jochensen joins us on the show today. Roger is well known in the craft distilling circles in South Africa. He managed to get the first craft distilling license in 1994 and has played an integral part both as a producer and as a consultant in the industry since then. Roger is now based in Kenya where he produces the award-winning Procera Gin. My name is Holger Meyer and this is Drinks World. Welcome to the show and today I've got Roger Jochensen with us. Welcome to the show, Roger. Yeah, thanks, Holger. Good to see you and hear you again. Yeah, we first met in 2011 and I was trying to work through when everything started in, in your life. It was way back, way before that. You you got your first distilling license in, in the early 90s when I just started in the liquor industry, 1994. That's when I got my first job as a beer salesman. Yeah, well, 1994, I remember it well. We um, were a small band of um, independent sort of maverick producers who wanted to break into the big boys' territory because in those days, although uh, South Africa was um, enjoying its first elections and independence, if you like, from apartheid, big business, particularly in the booze sector, was completely dominated by the big boys, Stellenbosch Farmers, um, KWV, Distel, and so on. And um, private distillation licenses were virtually unheard of. I mean, the history of that is that back in the day, I'm talking 100, 150 years ago, many, many private wine farmers had a little copper pot still with which they made you know, various versions and qualities of, of brandy, uh, pot kettle, banana wine. Yeah. Um, some of it for medicinal use, medicinal use, but some of it obviously for um, for drinking. And then in the 1960s, the authorities unilaterally revoked all those private distilling permits. And so from the 60s to the 90s, the uh, big business was able to consolidate <clears throat> and completely dominate the distilling industry in South Africa. So in 1994, birth of a new era, myself and Sydney back and Akin Bonanum from Claude Cabriere, we applied for distilling licenses and we were met with a brick wall. It was We had to batter it down and it, it, it took a while. And in the end, we, we got hold of the Burger magazine and um, they did an article on it. And you know, eventually in January 1994, our licenses came through. Um, but since then, we haven't looked back and um, South African pot still brandies have had a new lease of life. Producing beautiful stuff. Yeah. Roger, let's just take a step back. You were born in the UK. When did you come to South Africa? Yeah, I was born and bred, schooled in the UK and started my farming career there, including grapes and, and, and beer brewing and all that kind of uh, that sort of stuff. But eventually I, I, I got the urge to, to make wine commercially. And so the move to South Africa where I could obviously be understood in English and beautiful wine farms and great wines. I um, made the move to escape from England in 1986 and set up a wine farm in, in, in a beautiful Boerfle Valley of Wellington. Um, and really, I, 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 I farmed and made wine in the Wellington area there for from 1986, 87, 88, I produced my first wines. And... Um, 
stayed in Wellington right through to about 2017. When I came to visit you, what impressed me the most was your bitters. Can you remember those? <laughs> yeah, I remember them well. <laughs> I still have the recipes and I, I'm itching to get back to make more of them. Yeah, aromatic bitters. I mean, everyone knows Angostura um, and making a pink gin and adding a dash to other cocktails. But, you know, um, bitters have become more interesting since then. And I made a range of bitters to... Um, to uh, complement the different uh, types of gin I was making and vodkas that I was making. So I, I had a hop and grapefruit and I had a, um, a chipotle chili, um, smoked chili uh, bitters. I had a, an orange bitters that was incredibly popular, particularly for the Louisiana style, um, Florida style um, cocktail scene. Uh, orange bitters was hugely popular. I, I made others as well, but uh, you can get very wacky and esoteric with bitters. Um, in the end, you've got to settle on a range of a few. And so I had about four four different bitters, and, and, and they were hugely popular and, until I moved off that farm in Wellington and, and wasn't actually a, a producer anymore. Mm. Roger, the early days, you started uh, making brandy and... Uh Tell us a little bit about the brandy and then the progress into the other spirits. Yeah, well, the brandy thing was super interesting. I mean, I I, I, um, I expect everyone would understand when you say if you've got a wine farm and you want to make brandy, you're diverting uh, wine away from table wine bottling uh, processes and you're devoting it to distillation. Now, to do that, you've got to um, obviously have the equipment, but you've got to plug the gap in your cash flow because you're diverting wine from the bottle to the still, and then you've got to age it. And, you know, good brandy, as you know, is um, uh, within reason, the older it gets, the better it tastes and the more value it has. But then you, you're, you're faced with the decision when you're asked the question, you know, uh, what's all this going to cost? What about school fees and, and <laughs> wages and, and oak barrels and equipment and all this kind of thing? When's it ever going to pay back? And I, I made the sort of family decision then that it would become like my pension plan. Um, as you get older, so does the brandy. And as um, I get older, I hope I get wiser. And as the brandy gets older, it gets better. So, um, yeah, that was, um, I, I, I made the, the brand was originally called um, Claridge, Claridge Pot Still Brandy. But then I had a another sort of eureka moment and i thought hang on claridge you know pot still brandy pot kettle brunnerin they're very sort of ugly and unmarketable words um so i i i, I dreamed up one evening um and coined the word savignac yes um the, the gnocchi bit at the end is reminiscent or alludes to a cognac in terms of style and quality and essay at the beginning south south african and V-I-N in the middle, obviously vine or product of the vine, uh, Savagnac. Oh, brilliant. And so Savagnac was born. And there was even a, um, a move in the um, mid to around 2010 to have the whole of the South African pot still brandy um, adopt Savagnac as the generic for a pot still brandy. Uh -huh. Um, like you'd have uh, Savignac de Lomara or de la Motte or de Versailles. Um, um, but, you know, in those days, the industry was virtually run by FALBA, South African Liquor yeah. Brands Association. 
and their decisions kind of informed the legislation and they, you know, they kind of squashed it, um, which I think is foolish, but there we are. I still own the brand and still own uh, 20 odd barrels of, of, of beautiful stuff. And your yeah, pension um, fund. And my pension fund, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I can um, uh, probably fairly safely say that a, a beautifully packaged bottle of Sauvignac these days would, would trickle around the market around the 2,000 rand a bottle mark maybe more and you know at that price point and that quality you're not going to um you're not going to be on every back bar but you're going to please um true lovers of fine brandy yeah. and you know you, you, you've got the equipment um to distill you've got the premises um i had a, another sort of eureka moment when i thought hang on you know I'm sitting here every year waiting for the wine harvest to, to divert wine to the store seven yet. Um, the rest of the year, the equipment is kind of sitting idle. Why can't we make other distilled spirits? And so I sort of looked at the sort of map of spirits in South Africa and thought the obvious one to go for is gin and maybe pot still vodka, which I did. But then I, I, I did absinthe as well and I made... Um, um, an agave spirit from uh, agave from Hrafranet and various liqueurs like limoncello and I made a lime and an orange version of the same idea. So I started making a whole basket of, 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 of different spirits and they started come on, coming onto the market around 2008. And um, it was the right time because um, famous brands like um, uh, Hendrix and Bombay Sapphire were kind of leading the charge of sort of new generation gins. Um, and um, Bombay Sapphire even went to sort of put all their exotic botanicals on the side panels of the bottle. And you, know, you look at that and you think half those botanicals come from Africa and then they go back to Europe and get made into gin and then get shipped back to Africa again by big business. Um, and you look at those botanicals and then you think, but look around you at the um, peninsula and the Cape and the Cape Fold Mountains, and they are host and home to the most incredible botanical aromas, sort of medicinal and aromatic in, in our Feinbos kingdom. So I thought, let's make gin actually more African. And um, so we started using uh, different Feinbos types and uh, I even went so far as to um, find a juniper plantation in the Cape, in the in the Simondium area. So I was actually making my gins with with locally produced berries as well, and not relying on imported um, commodity uh, juniper berries. And 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 it clearly worked. And um, in those days, we were the only craft gin on the market. And as I said earlier, Inverosh were pretty quick to follow. But now, if you go into the big bottle stores in Cape Town, you'll probably count 300 gin labels from the Cape alone, never mind the rest of the country. Yeah. So it was really it was really the foundation of, of, of a whole industry. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of pleased and proud of, of that, that we were able to sort of shine a light into the future and, and um, provide a path for all these other um, aspirant distillers and, and winemakers to turn to distilling and uh, yeah but it's you know it, it, it's a it's a labor of love as much as anything um yeah you can make a good business out of it but you you need to have special skills holder you you 
for a start, you've got to understand the science and processes of distilling in terms of sort of the microbiology and the chemistry and the physics of it. But if you apply pure science to distillation, you're going to get a very sort of bland, one-dimensional product. Uh, on the other hand, you can talk about the artistic input required to sort of make these products more interesting and more colorful. Um, but if you apply, apply pure art to distillation, you're not going to get a workable end product. So somewhere, um, science has to meet art to become craft. So, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I think that South Africa's got great climate, it's, oh, it's particularly the Cape, it's got great everything. And it's got a, a population that really enjoys um, what goes over their palate in terms of food and, and, and wine and drink. Um, very discerning palate. So we were kind of preaching to a, to a, a ready audience when we were launching truly South African um, handcrafted premium spirits. And it, I'd say it's an easy market to penetrate. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it was because the timing was right and, and, and the, the people were right. The, the, the people wanted something South African. There was always, all over Africa, there's always been that perception that um, if it's imported, it must be good. If it's local, it, it's not good enough to export. So um, that's absolutely not true. Um, we make fantastic wines, beers, and spirits in South Africa, and uh, it's you know, the, the craft beer movement was sort of um, running a little bit ahead, but maybe hand in hand with the craft distilling movement, and also the move away from massive cooperative winemaking to individual estate and and pri private labels and so on. The so the market was absolutely ready for it, and and uh, it's been proven to be true. Where it stood the test of time, and all sectors continue to grow. Roger, from, from a distance, what, what attracted me to your brands was the finished product. So the packaging, the bottles, the branding, everything was, was different. And for the first time, maybe one had seen it in, in the brandy sector, but for the first time in, in the rest of the spirit category, somebody had packaged it nicely. How did you find that packaging or the bottles and how did you come up with those with that branding well the 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 the, the first thing holger is that being a bit of a sort of a, a maverick and a do-it-yourself kind of person um the last thing i wanted to do was, was was to go to a sort of a design house and yeah um and let them run with it and the other thing i had to realize was that um Sadly, in, in, in those days, uh, locally produced glass, um, although competently made, didn't really have the, um, uh, the flair of some of the um, imported glass. Um, we've changed all that with Prosler now by hand-making our own bottles yeah. in Kenya. But in those, in those days, um, you had to get away from what I call a, a, a stock bottle and find a, a manufacturer um, overseas who could produce something that was um, both sexy and, and affordable and not commonly seen on the South African market. So that's the first place to innovate. And then se secondly, um, avoid the design house because they're going to over-design the product and probably not understand you well enough. And the, and the labeling will look like it's designed. And um, so we literally, um, my family and I worked on a, on a, a piece of scrap paper and um, 
and put together um, imagery and lettering and um, ideas that were like clean and simple, but got direct to the point. Um, and I, I think that's terribly important. An awful lot of um, Spiritus products are, are way over-designed in the hopes that they're eye-catching enough that people will impulse buy them. Yeah. I, I, like a, I like a product that when it's labeled and you put it on a shelf next to 30 other products and you um, walk into the room and glance up at that shelf, uh, which label strikes you? And it's, it's the one that is bold, simple, minimalistic, and to the point. If it's, if it's over-flowery and over-designed, um, overly colorful, it kind of yeah, turns into a bit of a dog's dinner. I mean, it can be clever, and it can be nice, and it, it can be apt. But I like to keep it simple and direct and to tell the story directly back to the product and through the product to me. Roger, when, when did you start feeling... I guess everybody turned to you for advice in in those days when they st- wanted to make or, or start distilling. When did and and you said earlier there was a conflict between being a producer and a consultant. When when did the shift happen from a producer to to becoming a, a consultant? Well, Holger, a, a, a lot of people. You're right. A lot of people were approaching me for advice of all sorts and. Um, uh, everything from the sort of legality and, and uh, compliance uh, with uh, local and national authorities and the liquor board and um, SARS and, and uh, um, DTI, um, right through to um, uh, teaching people how to distill and answer their questions and eventually designing products for them or with them um, or helping them learn how to design their own products. And, and that, to me, became incredibly interesting because it was like every project and every client was like a breath of fresh air. You could feel their passion and enthusiasm, and they just needed to connect the dots and have someone to hold their hand to do that. And you, you can compare that with once you've got your own brand on the market and you've done the fun bit of um, choosing your botanicals and designing your label and getting the product the way you want it, Thereafter, you have to repeat that process ad infinitum to keep the product consistent, and it, it becomes a um, a repeated process, um, which after a while, although you might make business out of it, um, it's no longer um, stimulating the imagination and creativity. It's become a repetitive process. Mm. I, I guess that's necessary, but I was finding so much joy in helping people to succeed. And I mean, I don't know if you follow the Michelangelo Awards um, in South Africa. Uh, for the last five years in a row, my clients or my products have won the gin trophy. And that's not for no reason. Yeah. That's because I pick who I work with. Um, I want to feel their passion. I want to see that they've got the capability to follow through and and to make their dreams come true and then i can help them do that and it started way back with the aria wine estate and stellenbosch and they were the first of, of in the early days of my consulting they were the first to um sweep the platinum um and uh, gin trophy at michelangelo and um 
autograph in the Stellenbosch um, also won the Gin Trophy, entirely my product and my clients and my mentoring. Um, Elgin from Elgin uh, won it recently. Um, Prosura from Kenya, my baby, um, won it in 2018. And this year it was Select Beverage Company. All my clients all engaged me for a fee to um, help develop their products. And, and I can't tell you how much pleasure it gives me to see these people having wonderful products that are like internationally recognized. It's terribly important. And uh, so it became like inspiring and a lot more people, even internationally, were beating a path to my door to, um, to kind of learn what they needed to learn to, to um, follow in, in my footsteps. Uh, and now we've got um, Prosero with uh, the only gin, I think, ever to get two double golds in one competition. Um, and in the IWSC in London, um, Prosero got 96 out of 100. That, that, that's good stuff. It, and I've got other clients who don't, care to enter many competitions, but their their products are hugely successful. And uh, yeah, I mean, um, how about Global Gin, the Elephant Dung Gin? Yeah. Um, I, I designed that with the brand owners, and um, now they're exporting all over the place. And 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 they're they're, they're like a like a naughty story in the gin industry of you know how can you use poo in gin um but it's incredibly successful and and entirely safe and sanitary <laughs> but it but it's interesting it's, it's it's got a story and you know I, I do a few of those projects every year and um it, it it beats sort of um standing in the production line in a factory um so i have to do a bit of both of course because i'm in charge of production at process um but it's way more stimulating to take a, uh, a fresh project and um, uh, create a new product sort of two or three times a year yeah i think that's it's it's wonderful that with with age i think you get to know yourself better and you understand what your strengths are and that you could identify that roger and when did you make the move uh, or when did you have to start choosing between south africa and kenya well, um, the um, the Kenyans approached me in late 2017, um, and so between then and now, I am well. In the early days, I was making five or six plane trips a year up to Nairobi um, to get the product sort of into shape, and um, I'd sold my farm in Wellington by then, and I was renting, which meant. Um, when I went to Kenya, I was sort of renting in Kenya and I was renting in Stellenbosch in those days. Um, it just didn't make sense. And um, I had to choose um, South Africa or Kenya eventually because my South African clients were keeping me busy pretty much full time. But by then, the gin industry in South Africa, to say it was saturated is uh, well, maybe partially true. I mean, it's still viable and successful. But there's very little room to move forwards now without being too wacky or esoteric. I mean, everything, every botanical available in South Africa has been used in a gin in some way or another. Um, but Prosera, on the other hand, was a completely different animal. All, yeah, all African botanicals. Eventually, I had to choose. So it, it, it was like a, a new chapter in my life. My wife and I moved 
permanently to Kenya in 2020 in the middle of uh, lockdown. We got a repatriation flight to Kenya and um, I've been here ever since. Um, how, do, how did that yeah. uh, Procera project start? Well, it started with my partner here, uh, a called Guy Brennan. Um, he and his friends were sitting around a, a lunchtime table in Kenya saying to themselves, don't we love a gin and tonic on a hot day? And then someone else chipped in, well, let's make our own. And then there's a long, awkward silence when everybody uh, realized that they hadn't got a clue how to make it. <laughs> so they... So they put out feelers in the spirits industry um, in America, England, and South Africa, because South Africa was making a lot of craft spirits. And five of the six people they approached said, we need to get hold of Roger. So Guy jumped on an airplane and came to visit me on the farm in Wellington, the same one where we met. And he dumped a handful of, of African prosera juniper berries in my lap and said, can you make gin with this? And I tasted and I did a little sample distillation and I turned to him and I said, Guy, this is going to change the way the world looks at gin. And it has. And that was a huge challenge. There were lots of elements. One, it was a completely untried juniper berry in terms of international spirits. Um, nobody was doing anything with it locally. It's entirely sustainable because there are literally millions of prosera trees in the tropical highlands of Kenya, and the only person, people, only things using them were the baboons who, who like the sweetness. <laughs> and <clears throat> so literally thousands of tons of these berries were falling to the forest floor to be composted each year, and, and yet when you pick those... Um, they're different to communists. I'm not going to say they're necessarily better, but they're different and they're, they're brighter, more floral, more citrusy. And that's, I think, because those berries have um, sunshine and sunlight in the tropics all year round, as opposed to the cold winters of Europe where the things have to hibernate. Um, and the other thing is that because they grow right on our doorstep, we can use them fresh. So we're one of very few gyms in the world with access to actually fresh juniper berries that have never never dried, um, never fumigated, never um, irradiated and so on. Um, so we can use not only different juniper berries, but use them in a different way. And the results speak for themselves and, and uh, the success of the, of, of, of the product. So that was wonderful to be able to um, take that as a sort of the, the core quality ingredient of a, of a completely new and different gin. That was um, real inspiration, and it, you know, we've we've got to the stage now where we've got a, a, a sidebar project which we call the Prosera Principle, and the Prosera Principle is really um, providing a conduit to give other distillers, particularly in Africa, access to African juniper berries, with the idea that although everybody's using imported communists in South Africa. Um, Prosera is African, and why wouldn't African gins use an African juniper if they had access to it? So the Prosera principle is to provide a conduit where we're, we're picking 
many, many, many tons of these berries and um, making them available to um, other producers. There's even a, a possibility of, of tempting a big producer like Beefy to, to, to have uh, an African expression using a different juniper berry. And, you know, in, 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 in Kenya, I mean, it's... <clears throat> If, if you ask anybody overseas um, about Kenya, what, what they think it stands for, they'll tell you it stands for coffee, for tea, for top-class athletes, for, for safaris and game drives, for the, the, the tribes like the Maasai and so on, um, for cut flowers and vegetables. But what is there a, where is there a brand that actually identifies um, Kenya? Now, if you go to London, you go into the cocktail bars and you go to Boston or New York into hotels and restaurants and you mention the word Kenya, they go, ah, grocer of gin. And you know, that that is something that we are really pleased about and, and proud of, that we can actually have an African, entirely African spirit standing head and shoulders above many other gins on the world stage. That's fantastic. It's, yeah, I know, it's incredible. How long has it taken you to bring this to market? Well, um, you know, the, the, the route to market is, is is often tortuous and sometimes simple. You know, when, when we when we started this, we had to have a whole concept. Um, obviously, it evolved uh, you know, as time went by, but the, the concept was to keep it as African as possible and you know that's that's how we got to having a handmade bottle here in Nairobi by a wonderful company called Kit and Geller Hot Glass, and they literally hand make the bottle, and we hand pick the juniper berries um, on our doorstep, and so on um, to, to whack that all into shape um, from concept in late 2017 to first product on the market was about 18 months. Okay. But, you know, um, the brand, initial founders and brand owners, um, apart from me, um, knew nothing about making gin and recipes and so on. Um, so when Guy left me in Wellington and came back to sort of play on his still in, in, in Nairobi, um, he had a go at making the recipe I provided for him and um, called me up and said, this doesn't work. So I jumped on a plane and... His um, not very smart first batch of processor, yeah, it tasted awful because he didn't know how to make the cuts and do the tails and, and blending and so on. So I, I put the recipe back together again and distilled, and that was batch number two. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's great, um, but what about a bit more citrus? What about a bit more juniper? What about a bit more Madagascan pepper and so on and so on? So I, we, we went through multiple changes until we got to batch number 22, and he said, that's it. That's what I want. And so I looked at my notes and I looked at back through 22 batches. And the number 22 was absolutely identical in every respect to batch number two, <laughs> the, one that I'd, the one that I'd made for him. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was a learning process for them, him. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a gym consultant because I don't know how to make gym. Show me a, a batch of these new, new juniper and and new spices and so on, and I'll rise to that and I'll interpret them very quickly to put a um, a recipe together. Um, the first blue dot Prosera blue dot was launched late in in 2018. Okay. Um, 
We've got other advantages, though, um, <clears throat> which um, point to the, the, the quality of, of the gin. Um, there are four main ones. I've mentioned two. The first two are that we're using a different juniper um, grown in the tropics at altitude. And then secondly, we're, we're, we're using it fresh, never dried. And thirdly is we have the immense privilege to work on a Muller um, pot still. Um, Muller pot stills are without doubt head and shoulders the best um, distilling um, machines for um, gins, rums, agave spirits and so on. Um, they are fantastic. They're, they're so manageable and so distiller friendly, um, so controllable, infinitely controllable. And they they have a um, a, 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 a column uh, which doesn't use bubble plates or packing. It's got welded inside the column. There's a, there's a continuous copper spiral um, plate welded into the column, uh, much like an Archimedes screw. And the uprising vapors have got like 10 meters of copper to run over on this um, Archimedes screw thing till they get to the deflagmator or knockdown condenser on the top, which you can control infinitely. So you get a passage of, of um, heavier condensed liquids coming down, like the heavier oils, congeners, water, and so on, going downwards um, and being bathed in hot vapors coming up from the still so that you get a continuous and absolutely seamless extraction of, of only the finest and lightest elements and so that is a huge quality factor it produces gins that are incredibly soft to the palate. Mm -hmm. for example our red dot gin is is 51 percent abv and you can sip it you wouldn't even know um it's so smooth and then the the, the fourth element is that um I, for the last goodness knows how long, I've never put, I never put botanicals in the distilling pot. I don't because a distillation run is like six to eight hours at a time. And if you put plant material and subject it to heat, alcohol for eight hours, the cellulose structure of it is going to break down to such an extent that you get like, at the end of it, you get like a, a mushy, sulfurous mass of, of degraded botanical material. And, you know, that's what gives an awful lot of gins, like a sort of a, a heaviness or a density or a sort of stewed or, or cooked element to them. So instead of putting botanicals in the pot for distillation, um, I don't use the vapor path or gin basket either because it gives um, inconsistent results and we need consistency. Um uh, no, I, I select the botanicals and prepare them by, by grinding by hand fairly finely and putting them in um, what's like an overgrown tea bag. You could call it, a, we call it sort of the pillowcase technique. We turn a pillowcase into a giant tea bag and put the botanicals in there and soak them overnight, say 15 hours, in gently warmed alcohol and water. And only the um, elements from the botanicals, the lightest, brightest oils, are are extracted, mm -hmm. leaving the denser, heavier congeners behind. And then in the morning, we we drain and rinse um, that tea bag, and and start distilling. And what we've done is we've avoided botanicals in the pot, so we're not getting stewed cooked elements in there, and we've only 
extracted the lightest and brightest elements, particularly from the juniper, but also from the other botanicals. And that gives a gin that is like light, bright, seamless, but incredibly smooth and incredibly complex. And the other thing I um, have to say about preparing a gin recipe or distilling a gin is that it must be juniper forward, maybe supported by citrus in any form you like. Um, so it's got to be juniper citrus forward or just juniper forward. And if you can discern any other botanical in the flavor profile, in the palate, then I think you failed to make a gin. If I have distilled a gin and I've used rose petals and you can taste the rose petals or smell them, then it's a rose petal spirit, not a gin. <laughs> same goes same goes for Fiend Boss, same goes for um, other of the sort of strong botanicals, uh, particularly the warm spices like mm. vanilla, clove, cinnamon. If you can taste any of that in the gin, then it's not a gin anymore. And, I, and a lot of people in their sort of ardor, their desire to sort of get on the gin scene, um, kind of forget that. And um, yeah, they can call it gin because there's juniper berries in there. But if you can taste cinnamon or licorice, or anything else, then I think the recipe must be declared a failure mm -hmm. or not a true gin. So I'm very, very careful about that. I don't want, um, you know, and, and I, I think you can better describe those products as a flavoured vodka, a vodka flavoured with juniper and cinnamon, for example. Mm. Um, but it's not truly a gin. Okay. And um, so, you know, that, that kind of narrows your scope um for producing a quality gin and at the same time makes the makes the job much harder because you do want the interest and the complexity but you don't want any other botanical to dominate mm. roger and yep. what projects are you working how much time does procera take up are you do you still have time for other projects um i'm kind of contracted to you know, i'm a shareholder of course okay. um so that's that's my primary concern yeah. And yeah, I, I do get approached from people all over the world, particularly in Africa, but also other countries, um, to help work with them on a on a gym project. And I I respectfully decline. Okay. But having having said that, um, we are partnering with other people who are investing in, but don't know much about um, gin production in in Mauritius, Tanzania, Uganda, Congo. And as I said earlier, I've got a small side project in, in Nigeria. So I, I can work with those because I will also be a shareholder and the Prosera found, founders um, will also be shareholders. Mm -hmm. And what we as a team do, Guy and his expertise, um, provide the sort of um, business and marketing models. And I provide the, um, the recipes, the product and staff mentoring, training, um, to get each distillery up and running independently. Um, so that I have interests there that I can work with and am working with. Um, the first Tanzanian recipe will be coming off the still um, next week, Friday. Okay. You, you said earlier that you are making some, some videos about, I saw the video about the bottle and you said you're doing some other stuff. What was that again? 
Yes, we um, we're fortunate to have access to a brilliant. Um, um, French videographer who's an, a resident of Nairobi and become a friend. Um, and he is um, documenting on film just about everything we do. I, I, I can find it and share a link, but he's done a fabulous video of us on the trail of exotic botanicals in Zanzibar and uh, the island of Pemba, for example. Beautiful, moody, glorious shots. And then we've we've just done a whole series of um, harvesting the prosera berries in the Kajabi forest outside Nairobi. Um, when that, he's just done that now, but I can share a few of the still photos with you, and you'll see how sort of intense and moody it is. Yeah. And then we've um, we're doing a video on on the actual production processes which covers um, my view of sort of the, the quality inputs to, to, to prosera, um, you know, lo local juniper, using it fresh, the Muller still and the pillowcase technique. We, you know, we're happy to share all of that, but um, but nobody can actually copy it um, because to put it all together, I mean, we put, put it this way, we don't, we don't mind sharing the love in that, in that sense mm. um, to encourage people to make better gin. But they'll, you know, no, nobody will be fool enough to literally sort of copy. Yeah. Um, but I like that sort of storytelling. I think it just gives your brand so much uh, more equity. Well, it, it does give it actually a, a hold, particularly in the sense that, um, you know, in, in Cape Town, for example, there's a distillery on every street corner now, yeah. like there was a while ago by Craft Brewery, for example. Um you know, they, they can't all have an authentic story if they're working out of a, a small warehouse or garage set up in, in suburbia or in a little mm. industrial area. Um, you know, you've got to work really hard on an authentic story. We can hand on heart say that every single element that goes into um, Prosera um, is there for a reason and a sustainable reason and an authentic reason. Um, it's absolutely core, cool. and you know this 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 plays very much into a way the way um, we see the world spirits market um, uh, de developing. You know, if you don't have a sustainability element, if you don't have a true story, sooner or later people are going to uh, make the um, observation, and they're going to want to go with something that does have a, a, a proper backstory, and. Um, we want to document that so that we're completely ready. Yeah. Roger, thank you for sharing that. I think it's it's wonderful to hear that, um, to catch up with you and just hear the passion and uh, the, the the long journey that you've had to get to this this point. And it's it's really inspirational. Roger, how are, are the sales? You can... You have exported to South Africa. I have seen it in South Africa. How? What has the response been? The response is good. Um, uh, given, particularly given the um, um, the kind of vicious uh, alcohol uh, lockdown ban yeah. in South Africa, and um, our chief outlet um, was to be Yuppie Chef, and you know a couple of things happened there. One, they had to take alcohol brands off their um, off their website. Mm. And then secondly, they've just recently moved warehousing and so have to um, reapply for all their um, um, bond stores and, and um, licensed premises and so on. 
Um, but it's, it's gone well. But our, our main markets are the USA, UK, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, Germany. Yeah. Um, With a strong currency as yeah, where the strong currencies are, um, definitely. And the other thing is we're producing in what's called an export production zone here in Kenya, an EPZ. And um, that's primarily set up to give um, excise duty, VAT, import duty and tax breaks to people producing in the export production zone um, to create foreign currency for Kenya mm. and to um, create employment. And we get amazing tax breaks. There's a moratorium on on um, profits for eight years, for example. Um, no tax on profits, um, no VAT, no excise duty. Um, and we're allowed to sell only 20% of our production in, in the Kenyan market, um, which we're doing. And that's going extremely well. But without doubt, our lead markets are, are Europe and mm. uh, the USA. In London, for example, in the best cocktail bars, you'll you'll find a um, a, a prosecco martini or cocktail on on the list, um, uh, like twenty two English pounds a pop. You know, you, you can buy you can buy a decent bottle of gin in London for thirteen pounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And did did uh, your team have to travel to these places, or did they seek you out? Um, a bit, a bit of both. Um, once we were getting like double golds in San Francisco and 96 points in London, um, you know, uh, people do. I mean, p particularly um, uh, cocktail bars, hotels, restaurants that um, want something uh, different, something with a really good story, but it's backed up by quality. Yeah. So those those people find us out, but otherwise, Holger, it's it, it, it's hard work. And yeah. and Guy Brennan, co-founder, um, he's actually the CEO of the company as well. Um, he's on the road seven out of twelve months of the year. Okay, and li literally doing the hard yards down the pavement to the to the to the venues yeah. and um, in, engaging people and showing them product. He just got back from a um, dedicated trip to Boston, Massachusetts, and he had nine calls there, and eight became uh, clients. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you can't do that sitting on your ass in Nairobi or Cape Town or <laughs> Durban or whatever. No, we've learned that, eh? Hey? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you, you, you can have your dream, you can have your product, and you can do all the fun things. Um, everything up to the point of selling is fun. Um, okay, it's more fun if you've got a really good product and a really good story and you know how to talk to people. You know, that, that's great. But an awful lot of producers start with an idea of a product and haven't got a, any clue at all about how to actually get it into the market other than sort of going to the local bottle store or, you know, going to a, um, a local general spirit show of some sort, setting up a table and persuading people to come and taste. Uh, yes, you can do that, of course, and you've got to engage your local market that way. But how do you get into an overseas market? Um, what about the logistics and the pricing? And you know, who's actually going to handle it for you? Once you've got the account mm. at Claridge's Hotel, for example, who actually manages that account? So what we've done is we have a what we call our strategic shareholder um, cohort And we have um, handpicked and selected appropriate people in all these markets 
and invited them to become shareholders. Mm-hmm. So we've got a chap in London, we've got a, several in the USA, we've got in, in Sydney, Australia, we've got in Hong Kong, we've got in Singapore, we've got in Germany and so on. Um, people who are um, cash paid up shareholders in the company. And it's in their vested interest to look after the brand's interests in their respective markets. So that's been a very clever way in which we are assured of like 24-7 oversight of our product in the marketplace. Yeah. And then Guy, Guy goes to support them on a rotational basis, um, picking up new accounts and, and, and um, revisiting old accounts to make sure they're entirely happy and so on and so on. Now it's, it's, a, it's a big job. Yeah. It's if if producing it and selling it can be divided into percentage effort areas, then eighty percent of it is selling it and twenty percent is maintaining your quality and having the right product. Yeah. And those those lessons I think a lot of producers still need to learn. Roger, thank you very much for your time. Uh where's the best place to follow you? Me personally, I, I have a, um, a, a ooh, I have an Instagram account. I'll send you the link on, on your WhatsApp, and I have a Facebook page. Um, otherwise, you'll find me on um, popping up on on, on the uh, Prosera Media. Mm. We've got a full we've got full time media people now in in New York, London, and Kenya. Okay, um, it's, it's um, pr- uh, pr- uh, okay. Uh, Prosera Agenda. Wonderful, yeah. But we'd like those links for 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 the videos that you produce, and uh, it'll be nice to share those. Yeah, of course. I need to happy to do that. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.